Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. Last week, the story broke that there were multiple cybersecurity breaches of federal government computer systems, including the Departments of Energy, Treasury, Commerce, and Homeland Security. We also learned that these breaches may have been going on for months before they were discovered. We still don't fully know the scale, scope, or impact of the attack, but U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency did say the attack poses a grave risk to all levels of government, critical infrastructure, and parts of the private sector. U.S. intelligence believes hackers infiltrated an Austin-based software company called SolarWinds and used a software update to conduct the attack. This is so concerning because SolarWinds customers include government agencies and more than 400 of the top Fortune 500 companies. The attacks could have started as early as March 2020, and they were still ongoing when they were discovered. So the primary objective has been to stop the attacks. Now, we're still learning more about these attacks and what information was compromised, but it does look like the hack was conducted by Russia. Russian foreign policy has been such a large part of the narrative around the Trump administration that I really wanted to understand these hacks within the context of that and talk a little bit more about the U.S. government's relationship with Russia after Trump leaves office and what national security concerns we should have about Trump's relationship with Russia once he does leave office. So to help me understand this, I asked Tom Nichols to join me today. Tom is a Lincoln Project senior advisor, a professor at the U.S. Naval War College and at the Harvard Extension School, the author of several works on foreign policy and international security affairs, and a five-time undefeated Jeopardy! champion. Tom, uh, first Jeopardy! champion ever to come on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks. It's the only thing on my resume that people ever say, oh, no, that's impressive. <laughs> so, so, Tom, before we get started, before we started recording, we were talking about the chessboard that is hanging on your wall behind you. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? Oh, well, I, um, my daughter is, um, uh, was adopted in Russia. So uh, I got talking with her one time about chess and, you know, being the Russian national sport. And I said, you know, now and then I chat with Gary Kasparov on social media, um, the greatest, one of the greatest chess players in human history. And my daughter was duly impressed. And I asked him uh, for a signed picture uh, for her. This was back during the 2016 election when, you know, Gary was fighting Putin and um, never Trumpers in the pre Lincoln Project days were fighting mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. And of course, everyone fighting Putin and Trump realized they were fighting the same guys. And um, Gary, out of nowhere, uh, just sent me a very nice chessboard with an inscription to keep up the good fight and um, to, to and signed by Gary himself. So and cool. I decided, you know, when you have a chessboard that's been signed by one of the masters, uh, <laughs> you know, of uh, one of the greatest historical masters of the game, you frame it and you put it up and, uh, you know, you don't hide that one in a drawer. So, uh, that's, <laughs> you know, it's funny. A lot of people have asked me that question. Why do you have a chessboard? Is that because you're some kind of a strategist? And I'm like, no, it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's not nearly that clever. It's, uh, it's me fanboying a, a grandmaster. So. Yeah. But the cool points just went way up up in the last like month or so because of the Queen's Gambit, right? 
Yeah, you know, that's it is true. And people have asked me more about it because they're they're definitely more tuned to chessboards now. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but I, I was a big fan of, of Gary before it was cool. So that's terrific. So speaking of Russia, we learned from a Reuters report last week that the departments of Homeland Security, Treasury and Commerce were hacked. We later learned that the Department of Energy was hacked and that Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR, was most likely the culprit. Can you start by helping us understand what the SVR is and why these hacks are so concerning? Yeah, the SVR is the foreign arm of um, Russian intelligence. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the KGB, the Committee for State Security, split into the um, Federal Security Bureau and the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service. And um, the SVR is their civilian intelligence service. The previous um, uh, chicanery with the Russian elections, excuse me, with the American elections from the Russians, um, that was the GRU, which is a Russian acronym for um, military intelligence. Those guys are really hardcore. Um, They're even scarier than the SVR. Um, the SVR is plenty bad. But when you hear that, just think the KGB and the K, you know, basically the Russian intelligence services um, hacked us and went big. And understandably so. This is a great time for them to think about, uh, you know, pulling stuff like this, considering the situation we're in. So can you help us understand the scale of these attacks as well? And, you know, for those who may not have been following the story so closely, why we're very concerned about them? Well, uh, first, I I don't have any inside information on the scale. I think that's something we're all still learning about. And I should also add, I don't speak for the Naval War College or the U.S. government or anybody else. So I'm here purely in my personal capacity as a scholar. Um, I I think there's a couple of reasons to be concerned about the scale of this hack, which is first, and I'm not an expert on cybersecurity, but this is basic intelligence tradecraft. It, it, this is like pulling open, to use a Russian analogy, it's like opening up nesting dolls. That once mm. you've bored into some of these organizations, um, we're seeing this now with you know the hacks at Treasury and Commerce, that you can get into the home accounts of people whose emails and other um, information have passed through these organizations. And you know, you just dragnet in all this information, you start looking for connections, you start picking up passwords, and pretty soon, uh, a hack that started in one place turns into access uh, someplace a lot more sensitive. And that's just, again, that's standard intelligence work. Um, you know, you, you start peeling the onion and you see where it goes. The other reason that this is really concerning is because it's almost like they're not even trying to keep it a secret. I mean, this was right. just a blitz. This was just a hacking blitz um, because they're not afraid of us and they don't take us seriously. I mean, this has been part of an ongoing, and I, at the risk of people getting mad and yelling about both sidesism and all that crap, um, you know, this has been a, a trend that started to pick up steam, I would say, going back. 25 or 30 years, um, somewhat in abeyance after 9-11, but certainly picked up steam again in the Obama years, and then went totally on steroid in the Trump years of just not taking America seriously as a country, not really worrying about us. I mean, I'm, um, you know, I was one of the government employees whose data was hacked by the Chinese some years ago. Uh, this is not the first time that foreign entities have decided they can just stomp all over us with cleats. 
Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about the timing of this because I had had Malcolm Nance on recently to talk about this transition period and uh, and what's going on at DOD right now and how now is the perfect time when you know when when the transfer of power is in is essentially in question being questioned by the sitting president of the United States you know for a foreign adversary to take advantage of our essentially not paying attention do you think the timing is sort of core to this attack absolutely and it's more than not paying attention it's not that the Trump, I, mean, I think you could make that argument about the Obama administration, that they were just distracted. They didn't really care about this stuff. They had other fish to fry in places like Iran. This is worse. This yeah. is Trump actively covering for the Russians. Um, Trump actively trying to direct our attention away from the Russians while our own intelligence services are telling us. Yeah. But never mind our own intelligence services. How about Trump appointees like Barr and Pompeo? Uh, and others yeah. saying, yes, this was the Russians. Yeah. And Trump, who is, for you know obvious reasons, I think, related to his finances and his personal behavior, he is terrified of the Russians. Yeah. And so, you know, anytime the Russians do anything, the president steps out there to say, oh, no, not my friend Vladimir. Couldn't yeah. possibly be those guys. And then, of course, he has to add, oh, nobody's been tough on the Russians. Um, but that's nonsense. I mean, he hasn't been tough on the Russians. He covers for them and the Russians know he'll cover for them and it emboldens them. Yeah. How do you think about these in the context of cyber warfare? Because, you know, it's, it's still easy, I think, to think about war as exclusively physical when we hear that word. But it seems to me that more and more cyber warfare is is the new frontier of what war is going to look like going forward. So how do you see these conflicts playing out in cyberspace? I have trouble with the term cyber warfare. I think of it like, I mean, that that term is like cyber sex. It, it, mm. in, it excites some of the same emotions and yet it's different. <laughs> and we know that somehow it's different. Yeah. Um, the way to think about this is that it is a new arena of shadow warfare, of the intelligence competition and intelligence uh, conflict. Um, this is where espionage and sabotage and covert activity are going. They're going into the cyber realm. There's a professor at MIT who coined a great expression, code does not explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, so it's different in some sense, but from, you know, calling it from war as opposed to cyber warfare. Now, you can hurt people. I mean, you can, yeah. you can mess up air traffic control. You can blow up. Um, you know, uh, energy depots. You can do all kinds of bad things with cyber activity, but I think of those as um, the as old-fashioned sabotage and espionage. And I think people should think about yeah. that because to put it in the framework of war limits your options. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. war, so therefore we either have to kind of go all in or do nothing. This is shadow warfare. This is espionage, and it should be countered. Uh, appropriately. We need to have a cadre of covert operatives just the way everybody else does. And we do. We have a cyber command. We have people at CIA and you know other intelligence organizations who do cyber stuff. But I think we have to just take that, that aspect of it uh, more seriously to say that this is just now where espionage and sabotage are going. When you think about espionage and sabotage, and we, as you call it, shadow warfare, are there similar doctrines to, for example, you know, proportional response is a very standard way of thinking about 
traditional warfare, physical responses. Does the same kind of thinking hold true uh, when we're talking about shadow warfare? Absolutely. I, I'll just put in a plug here and say that in the summers at Harvard Summer School, I teach a course on uh, the future of warfare, and we talk about just war principles like proportionality, hmm. um, which are really important. And you know, part one of the reasons proportionality is important is that it it's a way that um, makes sure that little wars and small operations don't become big wars. Yeah. So you do have to observe principles of proportionality. Uh, an important part of espionage, of course, is deniability to be able to say, well, you know, like we've all seen Mission Impossible. It's funny <laughs> we're saying this because I was actually watching the original Mission Impossible the other night and laughing at, of course, if any of you or your team are caught, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your mission, you know? Um, and, you know, those are all really important parts of being able to do this. And I think, to, again, to go back to the Russian hacks, yeah, they're not even trying. It's like, yeah, all right, whatever. It was us. It was gigantic. We did it. Yeah. We know our fingerprints are on it. And they're kind of shrugging and saying, eh, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. Um, right. Your own president's on our side. So, right. you know, what, so, you know, so come so, at me, bro. Come at me. Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, yeah. what so, do you go? What do you got? You know? Right. Well, if you were thinking about, um, if you were thinking about a proportional response to the type and, and scale, although we don't really know the scale yet of these attacks, what would that look like if we were to engage in a, in a counterattack at this level? Can you give us an idea of what that would look like for the Russians? Well, I think one thing to understand is that proportional does not mean symmetrical. Mm, say more about that. Russia and the United States are not the same. We don't have the same kind of infrastructure. We don't have the same kind of economy. Um, I think the, a while back after the 2016 election, one of the ideas that was floated about how to put a stop to this kind of behavior was that um, you have to make it hurt. And you have to mm. make it hurt in a way that the Russian government can't just uh, pass it off onto the Russian people. Right. And by that, I mean, you know, sanctions, for example. We say, well, we'll right. sanction them. The problem with an right. authoritarian government is that they can just pass the pain along to the public mm. and say, well, it's not us. You know, uh, it's the Americans. They sanction you, and that's why you don't have cheese and butter and Full, eggs. And that further galvanizes and the that people. Gal exactly. Right. Exactly. So the best idea I heard after 2016 was that a proportional but a symmetrical response would be to start going after all of the secrets that matter personally to Vladimir Putin. Mm. Like, mm. where is his money? Yeah. How much of it does he have? Yeah. What countries is he stashing it in? Yeah. Where is it going? You know, do, do what, look, Americans are, we're, we're the king of the capitalists, man. We know how to track money. Yeah. Um, you know, we do that better than anybody in the world. Yeah. So I, I always thought that if the Russians, to use the political science term, don't cut the shit, yeah. uh, that um, we ought to say, look, you know, we're not going to hurt your people. We're not going to harm your infrastructure. Our argument is not with the Russian people. Um, I have friends in Russia. I mean, I, I am actually a Russophile. I'm just, <laughs> just for the record, because people always come at me later and say, well, you just hate Russia. I'm the guy that for 25 years has been advocating for better ever since the end. I was a Reaganite cold warrior. And after the end of the cold yeah. war, I said, time to bring Russia into the family. Yeah. I am actually um, Orthodox Christian. Um, <laughs> my daughter was born in Moscow. You know, my home is full, as you can see behind me, it's full of, you know, yeah. Russian art. Don't forget uh, the chessboard from the, ch the chessboard, <laughs> my book in Russian, 
yeah. my, you know, tchotchkes yeah. from the, you know, Soviet trains. I mean, I've been, you know, I mean, I have a great affection for this country. So my answer is don't, don't make this into some kind of, don't get baited into making this some kind of symmetrical warfare with, with the Russian yeah. people. Go after, uh, go after the guys that are, that are responsible and who are giving the permission for it and start with Putin and work your way down and make their lives difficult. So what you're talking about is almost like a, you know, a, a counterintelligence doxing of, of, of Putin to all of our NATO allies. I think that the Russian people should know what Putin's up to. I think that's what he's really scared of. I don't think Putin cares about people in the West. I mean, everybody in the West knows all this stuff already. Um, I think that what he's really worried about is his own people yeah. finding stuff out. And I think that um, if we're going, they, the, think of it this way, the Russians struck at a, at a vulnerability that's clearly an American vulnerability, our economy, our yeah. government institutions, our business institutions. The vulnerability on the Russian side is the closely held secrets of those government leaders who fear most of all their own people. Putin's biggest fear in the world is a color revolution or internal um, being deposed internally or uh, a group around him deciding that, you know, he's too dangerous or too bad for Russian business. Um, And I think, you know, we ought to think about tailoring our response yeah. In that way, there's a great story, and I'll, I'll just digress for a minute here and yeah, say please, that when please. we uh, and we tried to think about um, how to sanction. Now, this didn't work, obviously, but it was. It shows you some creative thinking. When we thought about how to sanction the North Koreans back when Kim Jong Un's dad was still running things, Kim Jong Il, we said, uh, or as you know, we some of our less bright congressmen thought of them, Kim Jong Two. Um, <laughs> We, uh, we said, well, what is it this guy really cares about? Well, you can't keep starving his people because he starves his own people just for laughs. I mean, he doesn't care about that stuff. And so we started reaching out to our allies and saying, let's, um, let's embargo things like Courvoisier and Rolex watches and yeah. porn. <laughs> um, back in the days when you could embargo porn, I guess. Um, but you know, he's a, he's a cognac as one doctor who interviewed him said he is a cognac guzzling hypochondriac and, um, you know, shut off the cognac, shut off the expensive watches that he gives to his inner circle, shut off the porn that makes his days bearable. And I think obviously not exactly those items, but I think that we have to think in those more creative terms when we think about striking back at foreign regimes, um, because it can't just be symmetrical. It can't be tit for tat. We have to think about what they're vulnerabilities are and the things that would really kind of get them to stop what they're doing. So as you mentioned, both Mike Pompeo and Bill Barr have said that Russia is likely behind the attacks. And despite that, obviously Trump took to Twitter to suggest that China could be responsible. And this isn't new for Trump. I mean, if you think back to Helsinki, right, US intelligence officials determined that Russia interfered in the 2016 election. And then Trump met with Putin and essentially said, Putin denied it, so I'm going to believe him. Specifically in these hacks that we're talking about now, why is Trump suggesting it's China when senior U.S. officials have publicly claimed it was Russia? But I suppose more broadly, what reasons would Trump have for siding with Putin other than, you know, the obvious? I think that's it. 
Um, and I think, you know, some, we can apply Occam's razor here. Let's go with the simplest explanation. Yeah. He is scared yeah. to death because for 30 years he has been doing, um, you know, dirty deals with Russian oligarchs. Now, I think one of the mistakes that people on the left and in the anti-Trump movement in general made was they overplayed this and they said, you know, Trump's a Russian agent. Mm. As though somehow, you know, Putin calls up in the morning and says, no, remember Donald, you know, to destroy NATO by four o'clock today because this was our bargain. You know, <laughs> that's not how it that's not how any of that works. The yeah. way it, the way it works is he knows they have stuff on him. They know they have stuff on him. They know that he knows and he will be innately cautious rather than trigger any of their anger. It's kind of like, you know, running into somebody on the street that, you know, you owe money to, you know, you're going to be as pleasant as possible, uh, you know, and say, Hey, how are you? You know, you're not going to, um, you know, you're not going to give him the finger in traffic. You're going to, you know, try and stay out of his way because you know, you're in a, in a weak relative position. So I think he brings up China as a way of just throwing sand into the gears because he also yeah. has conditioned his loyalists to think of China as the boogeyman for everything. He did that starting four or five years ago. You know, China's cleaning our clock. They're taking our lunch. They gave us the bat virus, the, you know, the Kung flu, all the racist tropes. And he's been very successful at that. Um, Yeah. You know, it's um, for his, for his loyalists, for his most loyal supporters, racism is an easy sell. Um, And also let's, uh, let's give Trump one inch of credit um, there's plenty to be mad at the Chinese about. Sure, right. He takes a little bit of truth and then mixes it with a, in a cauldron of lies. And yeah. That is Trump's secret sauce to take one small thing that has an element of truth yeah. and then turn it into something that is completely crazy pants cuckoo. Yeah. Um, and so I think he just brings up China as a way of saying, well, it clearly has to be some big state actor. Yeah. And it can't be Russia because I have to defend Russia. I, I think the word we should always think of when we think of Trump when it comes to Russia, is not an agent or, you know, it's compromised. The word you want to use here is compromised. Right. He is compromised. He is, there is a reason that somebody with his financial history and his contacts and dealings would never be allowed to get a security clearance in the United States mm. because it is just too dangerous, because there's just too much leverage yeah. over someone like that. Yeah, And that, I think, is why... Whenever, you know, you brought up Helsinki, Ron, and to me, I thought, I I really thought, it shows you how naive and, you know, we were once all young and naive, right? And it was only two years ago. I really thought that Helsinki was when the Republican establishment was going to say, my God, you know, enough is enough. He has sold out the country. It did feel like that at the time, I remember. It felt like we were so close to this moment of, the, the Republican establishment, the foreign policy establishment, you know, of course, establishment is a trigger word yeah, for, for Trump's is. people. But so the institutions, of the institutions, how about normal people? How about normal people? Right. Instead of saying the establishment, how about saying normal human beings would finally have said, my God, this guy is in bed with our enemies. Uh, you know, the, I mean, Helsinki, well, I, I physically felt my face like flush with embarrassment on his behalf while I was watching yeah, it. It made yeah. me physically uncomfortable to watch him. I said, my, this is, I've never seen an American president physically, literally cower in front of a Russian mm-hmm. leader. Yeah. And, and it was uh, now I thought, you know, now I know how people in defeated countries feel. 
you know, you mentioned him not, you know, under normal circumstances, never being allowed to, you know, participate in intelligence brief, you know, being able to get a security clearance as a, as a, you know, if he were to go try to work for the CIA, for example. I asked General Michael Hayden on the, uh, for the, on the, on the podcast, right? I mean, for- <laughs> yeah, about, you know, what, what, what about the kinds of things that, uh, you know, Hayden, as you know, ran both the CIA and the NSA, the only man ever to do both right. of those things. And I asked him, you know, what are the types of things that you look for and what are the types of red flags that you look for? And it was an incredible honor to talk to him. But basically all of them, all yeah. of the red flags go off with this guy. So, you know, to, to your point about a, you know, a sitting president of the United States cowering to a foreign adversary, what dangers does that present and, and, and siding with leaders of foreign countries over our own intelligence community? What kind of dangers does that present? And, and I guess more broadly... And with a longer view, how much damage do you think he has done, not just to our own intelligence community's ability to do their job, but to our, you know, to our standing in the world, to our own, to our national security because of this behavior, because of how he's been compromised by the Russians? You know, the damage is incalculable in some areas. I, I think the, the most important thing to understand about the damage Trump did is that he has proven that America is capable of losing its mind, which until now was always a hypothetical. If you talk to some of our friends overseas, if you talk to some of our NATO allies, you know, they will say things like, we, we always thought this was possible, but we didn't think you would do it. In other words, that you really, that you would elect someone who says, uh, the hell with Europe, you're on your own. Um, you know, we don't really care about alliances. I mean, I think our our friends around the world always understood that there's kind of an ignorant nativist isolationist streak in America. There always has been. Goes all the way back to the 1930s and, you know, the people who wanted to keep us out of World War II, you know. But I think in the in the post-World War II environment, our allies counted on yeah, you Americans, you have a lot of ugly fights at home, but we always know that we're part of one family of democracies and NATO is going to be there and we have our TIFFs, but you know, you're basically the sensible leader of the free world, even though you're kind of, I think the Europeans, you know, have always looked at those kind of hicks or hillbillies sometimes, but you know, basically good hearted people that will do the right thing. What Trump did is prove that we are capable of not being good-hearted people who will not do the right thing. And it, the, the metaphor I use is, this is like being married to someone that you really love, that you know have all the normal problems in a relationship, and then one day your significant other hits you. No matter how much you patch the relationship up, it's no longer a hypothetical. You can always say, well, she never hit me, or he never threw anything at me. Now you can say, in the entire relationship, until you die, there was still a moment where the hypothetical became real. And I think that's what our allies are going to have to live with and that we're going to have to live with for years to come, as a, for decades to come as a country. That, to me, is the real damage uh, that Trump did, was to prove that we are capable of losing our minds and abusing and lashing out at our best friends. And I, I don't see how we get over that. And if, I'll tell you, if there had been four more Tommy, years of this... Got, I just got chills the way you put that. I've never heard anybody uh, put it quite like that. 
I, I, I sometimes am reluctant to do that because, you know, it's a really uncomfortable metaphor and I'm sure yeah. it raises ugly feelings in, yeah. in a lot of human beings. And I, I don't mean to do that and I'm sorry, but um, it is, it is the thing in our, well, I, I put another way, it's like cheating. Um, you know, it's like being in a relationship where somebody cheats. And um, again, even if you put it back together, you live with that knowledge that this is now possible. Yeah. And I think that's what Trump did. He took the knowledge that something that was only ever hypothetical became real for four years. And I, I was going to say, Ron, you know, four more years of this, I don't think we could have put it back together. I think I, four more years, he would have finished the, the job of destroying America in the world. We, it would have been not just America first. It would have been America alone. Yeah. Um, and we would have really learned what it's like, as I said earlier, to be a defeated power, yeah. to be, to, to be a, a first rank power headed um, into the second or third rank of, uh, of power, despite our immense economy and our remarkable military prowess. Because without values, without will, without ideals, yeah. we're just another big muscle bound lunk on the world scene that other people have to work around. And I think that's where, where Trump was bringing it. So thank God this yeah. thing came to an end when it did. Yeah. Well, um, we got a month to go still, but yeah. Yeah. Well, and he is, <laughs> yeah. you know, that is a real danger. I mean, my, my yeah. big concern here is that he is angling now, I think after he's, and I don't mean to go sideways on us here and become even darker and more yeah. of Professor Buzzkill, but my real concern is now that he's been defeated in the courts, he's been defeated um, you know, the, with this, all this crazy coup talk, yeah. his next move is going to be to trigger some kind of a military conflict somewhere. Yeah. I want to go back to the hacks now mm -hmm. um, because we've got to talk about, you know, the incoming Biden administration. And, you know, th these are all happening right at the tail end of the Trump administration. So there's a lot of cleanup that needs to be done and, and securing systems and, and all of that's going to have to happen in the Biden administration because we know the Trump administration is not going to do a thing. What are they going to need to do to respond to this? And I, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of proportional responses, but beyond the response, I mean, I mean, domestically here, what are we going to need to do to clean this up at home? Well, to link it back to the timing of this attack, the Russians know that the Trump administration is not cooperating with the Biden administration, and they are counting on a lot of um, time and information being lost in the handover. Um, they, you know, if I were the Russians, this is what I would have done. I would have waited till you know this this moment of chaos. I would have struck and said. What are they going to do about it? Half of this stuff isn't even going to get to the desk of the next cyber director um, because yeah. Trump's firing everybody, you know, willy nilly. Yeah. And, you know, the transition teams aren't talking. Nothing's yeah. happening. Who's got the passwords? Oh, that we fired. That was three fires ago. Like, yeah. we don't know where they are. Yeah. Well, the, right. When, you know, I mean, when, when the two most common names in your national security structure are acting and vacant, um, <laughs> You know, there's just, uh, there's, you know, you don't spend a lot of time if you're in the Kremlin worrying about who you're pissing off. Yeah. So the first thing yeah. the Biden administration is going to have to do is to get ground truth on what happened. Yeah. Because the Trump administration clearly is not going to share this with them. Yeah. And so there's going to be some time lost. If I were, if I were 
um, offering advice to the Biden administration, which I'm not, because of course, you know, we're always, so you Lincoln Project guys think you're running the Biden, pro- I don't, <laughs> you know, you're asking me as an expert on, yeah. you know, Russian affairs, um, my answer, and, and as a former Senate guy, um, just to remind people, I did, I was once a Republican and I did work for Republicans yep. uh, in the Senate. Um, my, my answer would be, take your time. Find out what happened. Get your people in place. Um, you know, and and then do all of this stuff quietly. Because I think one thing that the that was lost in the Trump era, and I and again, I I think this is some this is a characteristic that he shared to some extent um, with uh, Obama. Um, start using the back channels more. Now, Obama did that pretty effectively in the Iran deal, but. I think the I think the the great Achilles heel of the Obama administration was the obsession with getting the Iran deal. Um, start using the back channel and have somebody who can go to Moscow, who has Biden's trust and confidence, and that the Russians know has Biden's trust and confidence, and to say, you know, six months from now, we've you know we've done our homework, we know what happened. Um, here's what you're going to stop doing. Yeah, and here are the bad things that could happen. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this is, this is when a back channel is really useful. Have somebody be able to say, look, I'm not saying this publicly. We're not yeah. putting you on the spot. I'm just telling you, you're going to have to cut the crap. I'm the captain now. I'm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with the, you know, the, the party's over. Yeah. Um, you know, the guy that wasn't checking IDs at the door and was handing out drinks to the 12 year olds, uh, you know, is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to run a clean joint around here now. And I think it, that will just take time yeah. and it, and it needs to be done you know, with, with no drama and with quiet competence. Right. And the Russians will, I think, I think if you take that approach, the Russians will see it. They will understand it. The Russians, I think the Russians almost can't believe what happened during the Trump. Yeah. Um, And I think even the Russians were a little wrong footed because what, what Russians like is predictability and stability. Mm. Um, Trump took them into places they didn't want to go. I, I wrote at the beginning of the Mueller investigation, this was not what the Russians wanted. They did not want their operations looked into by a uh, you know, bloodhound like, like Robert Mueller. Um, they did not want their operations uncovered and their connections revealed. Trump has been a source of great fortune for them by basically letting them do whatever they want to do in the world. On the other hand, he also is, you know, um, he's like the, he's, he's the friend at the party who drank too much and, you know, keeps babbling all the secrets that you didn't want to tell people. And so I think um, they will, they are ready for a more predictable and stable relationship with the Americans. They, they know the candy store has been open for four right. years and they know that couldn't last forever. And I think if the Biden people um, take an adult and firm approach and, you know, go to the Russians and say, look, you know, we weren't in charge these last four years. We understand why you did what you did. Um, maybe we even kind of get it that, you know, anybody would have taken advantage of this clown, uh, but the party's over. So I want to press you on one thing because the, the idea that, and this is probably mostly, you know, a point of clarification for me, but the idea that the Russians want predictability and stability is counterintuitive to what I've been uh, hearing, learning about 
their MO, which is to, to divide, to create chaos and confusion. And that's their preferred route to um, essentially gaining political yes, but power. In, which, but in other places. I see. Okay, um, so for themselves, you mean... And for their relations with the Americans. You know, one of the things that I yeah. know happened early on in the Trump administration, uh, because I had friends who were talking with the Russians mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, both in, you know, both in informal kind of exchanges and uh, more uh, official capacities. And, you know, the Russians were always asking us the same question. Who's in charge? Who do we talk to? Uh, you know, there are other things the Russians care about besides sowing chaos in the American democratic system and breaking up NATO. I mean, I think Putin's overriding goal as a former Soviet guy, um, there's even a great Russian ex- term. They call him a Savok, a Soviet. He's just a product of the system, you know, of the, of the Soviet era. He would love to break up NATO. But in the meantime, the Russians, I'm, I'm sure, would like to keep the new START treaty. Um, I think the Russians probably could have been wrangled better on the INF treaty, which they were trying to break as a way of intimidating the Europeans. But, um, you know, they, they don't like being surprised. The Russians are, if you've ever been in a conference with Russians, there is no spontaneity. There is no freewheeling commentary. The Russians, I mean, remember that line in um, Hunt for Red October? The Russians don't take a dump without a plan, son. Yeah, that's right. You know, there, <laughs> there, there is an element of truth in that. I mean, that they, that, you know, even with their worst enemy, if you go back and look at the history of the Cold War, even, even in trying to deal with Reagan or Nixon or Carter, you know, actually, and I'll, I'll just detour into Cold War history yeah, for a moment and say, their least favorite president was Jimmy Carter. Mm. Um, they hated him. They hated his guts. Why? They were actually they were actually hoping that Reagan, um, the former ambassador to the United States, Soviet ambassador to the United States, said we were actually hoping Reagan would win because we could not imagine anything worse than Jimmy Carter. And <laughs> what they couldn't stand about Carter was that he was completely inconsistent. And if you think about this from a mafia point of view, right? Remember the Godfather, Mikey. It's just business. It's not personal. Right. So when they would come to talk to Carter, they'd say, listen, we have this deal. We worked it out with Nixon. We talked about it with Ford. It's about nuclear weapons and bombers and missiles. And Carter would say, all right, well, I'm going to talk to you about arms control because we must end this you know, threat. But in the meantime, I want to talk to you about the way you're treating Jews and the way you're treating human rights activists. And they were like, you know, like Carter would literally become, what about this guy that you have in prison right now? His name is Joe Blow. And they were like, listen. We're here to talk nuclear weapons. We don't need any of your yeah. Sunday school lectures. Right. What the hell are you talking about? Right. What? Right. And finally, they would just get up and walk out and say, we're not here to get lectured. Like at one point, literally, their foreign minister said, listen, this guy's a criminal. He's in our system. And you can go piss up a rope, basically. Yeah. Um, and so the, the Russians love this one term. There's an expression in Russian, dielavoy. It means businesslike. They say we look like they used it with Nixon as a as a compliment. They said Nixon is Delavoy. He's businesslike, mm-hmm. and they were actually hoping that Reagan would be Delavoy. And Reagan, of course, turned out to be their worst nightmare. <laughs> right. Um, but at least they kind of you know at once they got past those first few years and Gorbachev came in, they were actually able to sit down and talk Turkey with them. They, they, don't, they don't mind having enemies. The Russians have a lot of enemies in the world. What they don't want to deal with 
are people who surprise them or drag them into situations that they did not themselves foresee. Right. Um, and Trump is just, you know, what, like I said, when the Russians are sending messages to, to Americans saying, who's in charge in your country? Who do we talk to? How do we make this deal stick? Who, who speaks for the president? Who represents the State Department? How is this getting done? You could you could sense a certain amount of anxiety there to say, you know, yeah, you know, we're screwing with your system and you guys are on flat on your backs and we're really enjoying that. But on the other hand, you do have the most powerful military in the world. You do have 1,500 nuclear weapons aimed at us as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and maybe just a little bit more predictability wouldn't be such a bad. Mm-hmm. I think they've squeezed the juice out of Trump and they're going to throw him away like the empty husk that he is. Um, they've gotten everything they can get out of them. And now I think the big danger is what has Trump learned as president yeah. that he's going to trade off yeah. in his private life afterwards yeah. because yeah. he, you know, because he has oh, no sense man. of right or wrong. Yeah. Um, he is a purely instrument. He's yeah. a goldfish. That's a perfect segue to something else I wanted to ask you, which is something we've talked about on this podcast before. But one of the things that, you know, jumped out at me in this story is that the last time the White House listed an intelligence briefing on Trump's daily schedule was in early October. So, you know, just just on a basic level, can you help our listeners understand why it's so critical for the president to have regular intelligence briefings and how odd is it for there to be a stretch of almost three months where there's no listed intelligence briefing on the president's schedule? I mean, speaking of things that he has learned as president, what, what do you think he has learned as president? Does, does Donald Trump learn, first of all? Yeah, and, no. And <laughs> I, I, you know, I think actually it's been a good... If you're telling me the president has an intel, hasn't had an intelligence briefing in three months, that actually is good. It means he doesn't have, you know, the most up-to-date uh, and anything... Let's, let's remember, he doesn't have a real good grip on facts. His memory isn't exactly, you know, razor sharp. Um, so the less he knows on his way out the door is probably the better, uh, because as I said at the beginning of his administration, one thing we know, and again, we know this from people that worked with him in private industry, and I heard this directly from people who had worked with him in the transition, he is unbriefable. Mm. He cannot be briefed. I, I've done briefings for politicians. I, I've done briefings for one politician, groups of politicians. And the way a briefing goes is the briefer comes in and says, good morning, and then tells them things. And then they ask questions. The way Trump's briefings went is they walk in and he talks at them. That's not a briefing. (laughs) Um, I'm serious that somebody who who did a briefing with him when he was in transitioning um, in the, in the transition. And it was, um, it was a foreign policy related brief and apparently uh, a very senior person in the room stopped him and, and put his hand on his arm and said, uh, Mr. President-elect, you have to listen to this. This is actually important. Like had to literally stop him from talking so that the briefer could tell him all this, you know, highly sensitive stuff. Um, I think actually, I think it was right after he came in and said, Mr. President, you have to listen to this. This is actually important. Um, in 2017. And um, so he's unbriefable and there's no point in briefing him and just inundating him with classified material if he cannot assemble those facts or, or make any sense of them. And, you know, from the 
reporting in the Washington Post, New York Times, and other places, it's been very clear that they've had to dumb down the briefings basically to the level of sock puppets um, as it is. I mean, he does not absorb written material. Colorful charts. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. You know, Sesame Street, today's briefing is brought to you by the letter R for Russia. Um, (laughs) You know, so he he can't, he's... I mean, I say this not as a never Trump Lincoln sure. project partisan, yeah. but I say this as, you know, an observer, as a political scientist. I think he's the most palpably stupid human being ever to sit in the Oval Office. Mm. Um, I, I, Fran Lebowitz's words keep ringing in my ears. You don't know anyone as stupid as Donald Trump. You just don't. And I think that has been clear. You know, there are presidents that are, Ronald Reagan was an attentive um, John F. Kennedy was educated, but not particularly industrious. Um, you know, George W. Bush ran everything like a Harvard Business School kind of meeting. Every president's had their flaws about these kinds of briefings. I don't think we've ever encountered a president who is just too stupid to understand any of the material mm. he's being told. Now, to back up and but say, that why makes is him more dangerous? Right? I was just I mean, going to say, right. and that means that policy is being made in a complete vacuum of information because the president is just too stupid to understand anything going on around. So, uh, you know, you can look at it one of two ways. You could say it is incredibly dangerous that the president is not getting intelligence briefings because to make coherent policy, the president needs up to the minute intelligence. The other side of that is he doesn't understand it. He doesn't listen to it. He is not interested in policy. And we are at functionally without a president right now. The only thing Donald Trump does is plot against American democracy to try and stay in office. He's not actually running anything. Right. And so I suppose you could argue as long as Mike Pompeo or whoever the sec def is in the last 10 minutes as he's plowing through appointees, as long as they're getting up to the minute intelligence and they've got a steady hand on the tiller, then, you know, we'll muddle through. Um, I guess in the Christmas season, you know, we'll muddle through somehow, right? Um, But that's a hell of a way to run a superpower. So this gets to, you know, this gets to what we were talking about a little bit ago about, you know, what he could do with what he knows, maybe not learned, but what he has you know, picked up along the way. And we get this question actually all the time from listeners. So, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about it. Obviously, former presidents are still entitled to receive classified intelligence on major foreign policy issues. But as, as we've mentioned before, we've consistently seen Trump prioritize Putin's interest over the U.S.'s interests. So what safeguards are in place, if there are any? You know, what's to stop Trump from sharing or even selling classified information to foreign governments once he leaves office? Is this something that we should understandably be afraid of? Yes. First of all, he, former presidents are not entitled to intelligence briefings. Okay. That's a courtesy. Former presidents have no status other than as private citizens. Now, by law, they are allowed to have certain things like Secret Service protection because we are a decent and humane country and we don't put our presidents out on the street in a country with 300 million guns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that, that is perfectly sensible. But I would not, I would, if I were the Biden administration, I would discontinue this with Trump immediately. First of all, he has earned no goodwill in terms of courtesies to a former president. He should get what the law allows and nothing more. Um, He should be given 
briefings that are related to his own safety. I think if the FBI, you know, if the President Biden, you know, should allow law enforcement and the National Intelligence Services to say, of course, you can talk to Donald Trump about, you know, if we have any indication of threats or, you know, concerns about his safety. Absolutely. Donald Trump's Donald Trump is a former president of the United States. He should be, um, you know, he should be able to collect his pension and be looked after and protected as because we are a decent country. I know there are people out there already bristling at this mm. and saying the hell with him, put him on the street, let him take his chances. Mm. No, we're not we that kind of that. country. This is not, this is not some banana Republic, yeah. um, you know, where we throw the guy, he, whatever else he was, he was president of the United States. I personally don't ever intend on giving him the courtesy of referring to him as president Trump ever again. Um, you know, there used to be in the old days when people read etiquette guides, yeah. um, it is actually inappropriate to refer to a former president of the United States as Mr. President. Hmm. You refer to president is a temporary title because you're the presiding officer. Hmm. Um, if you watch C-SPAN, mm-hmm. um, because we're all nerds and we do, right? <laughs> uh, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so when people stand up in the Senate, they say, Mr. President, I rise today to speak to and it always confuses people because they're not speaking to the president of the United States. Right. They're speaking they're to the presiding of the officer of the Senate. Right. Madam President, I, uh, yep. I arise today. The minute Which rotates, sen- by the way, for exactly. our listeners. We rotate that, president, presidents of the Senate. Yeah. And when the, when the presiding officer steps off the Senate podium, mm-hmm. they're back to being senator. Right. Um, and so, you know, um, if you really want to play this game, the appropriate way to refer to Bill, Bill Clinton is Governor Clinton. That's his lifetime title. Um, with George H.W. Bush, you could have called him Ambassador Bush, mm-hmm. Governor Governor W. Bush. Um, you know, there's Senator um, Obama. Right. Uh, but um, we do this as a mark of respect to say you once held the greatest title. Um, you know, my old boss, Richard Nixon on Twitter um, uh, something people just can't seem to figure out, which I delights me to no end. You know, I always refer to him on Twitter as Mr. President or Mr. Nixon. Um, yeah. If people want to do that as a mark of respect, that's fine. But I think Donald Trump has not earned any of those courtesies. He certainly has not earned the courtesy of being um, of sharing secrets with him that he has shown unable to keep, even when it was his constitutional duty to do so. Absolutely not. Before I let you go, Tom, um, what's your favorite story from winning Jeopardy so many times? <laughs> or maybe, maybe a better question is like, what is what was the what was what was the toughest question? Uh, well, I'll tell you two quick stories. Okay. One, okay. one is um, one that I I did reveal in an interview some years later. Um, back in the day, uh, they used to introduce you and you would walk out. Now, today, if you watch Jeopardy, you're already at the podium. They save a little time because they used to do a professor originally from Chicopee, yeah. Massachusetts, and you'd walk out, right? And yeah. take your yeah. place. So the three of us would be standing in the dark in, in, backstage waiting for the show to begin. And I had yeah. already... And I had already plastered two two rounds of opponents. I was going into my third game, and this this very nice lady. I mean, I don't. This isn't personal, just sure. business. But she turns to me just before we walk in. She says, "Look, you don't want to beat me in front of my eight year old daughter, do you?" Oh my gosh! <laughs> well, I had I was newly married. I was just um, married to my first wife back. This was thirty years, almost thirty years ago. And I said, "Well." I said, you don't want to beat me in front of my new wife, do you? My da- your daughter will always love you. My wife will leave me. 
<laughs> and, and this woman just stared at me with like a frozen expression on her face and she said nothing else and turned around and the three of us went out there and then I beat the beat the pants off of uh, both of them. Um, the other was that the, the, the miraculous question that saved my bacon in the, I think in the third, second or third game, but I was, I was behind. And of course you can win in final jeopardy if you pull it out and get it right and your opponents get it wrong and everybody has to wager everything and you right. can come out of third and win. Right. And the question was, uh, the category was U.S. history, which was the tip-off. And the question was, um, British actress Laura Keene first came to America in the 1850s and was best known for her starring role in this play. And uh, we all, st- I, could, I mean, I'm, you know, standing right next to the other two people and we're all going, you know, like, <laughs> what? British act? And then I suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me, the category is U.S. history. There are only two plays in U.S. history in the 1860s and anybody would ever care about. One, my opponents both said Uncle Tom's Cabin. British actress, I realized they were they were cluing us in because Jeopardy is all about riddles. The answer is always buried right, in there. Right. They were cluing us into our American cousin, which was the play Lincoln was watching when he was shot. Oh my gosh. And I said, wow. it can't be anything else. It's got to be our American cousin. I come out of third place. I win the game. I knock the the two. Uh, I keep going. And Alex, of all people, one of the the guy next to me says, Tom, that was really great. You know, my fellow player and Alex who normally doesn't chat a lot. Yeah. You know, he's, he's very, he was God rest his soul. He was very Canadian, not the most effusive guy in the world. Yeah. <clears throat> he leans over and he says, yeah. How did you know that? <laughs> I was like, I was like, it was like a little put off, you know, I was like, I don't know. Cause I'm way smart, Alex, you know, like what, um, you know, and he just, but he likes, yeah. How did you know that? And I'm like, I, you just saw me tear through three games. Of yeah. What do you mean? How did yeah, I know that? Give me that? a little credit here. I, you know, where's the love, bro? So, um, <clears throat> so those were my two favorite, um, Jeopardy story. Truthfully, the rest of it was a blur. It's the fastest 28 minutes of your life. It just goes by. Wow. And I was still a smoker in those days too. We shot yeah. five shows in one day and all i remember was running upstairs to go out on the balcony at sony which was still in um, hollywood at the time smoking a cigarette changing yeah. my clothes running back downstairs yeah and, you know by the end of it i was totally fried that's too cool and it was about lincoln that's a perfect <laughs> place lincoln, to then that's it's right a perfect i mean place it's a perfect today. place to go out <laughs> tom where can people find you i think they should follow you on twitter because you're great on twitter on the internet, you can find me at Radio Free Tom. And if you want to drop me a line, I'm at deathofexpertise at gmail.com. Terrific. Tom, thanks so much for being on with us today. Thanks, Ron. It's great to, great to chat with you. Absolutely. Thanks to Tom for making the time today. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.